You didn't expect to hear that at church today, did you? But what a great tune about doing life together. And that's what we're going to talk about today is how we can do life in an extraordinary way, but not do it so much individually as we can do it corporately. Now, last week, if you were here, we talked about we were kicking ordinary to the curb. We were now going to live our lives in an extraordinary way. And I gave you a homework assignment, and I hope you chose to accept it. I just ask you to spend time every day, about 10 minutes a day, just reading the Bible, also seeking the Lord in prayer, and then I ask you to take him with you everywhere you go. Friends, how can we expect to ever be extraordinary if we don't involve God in the midst of our marriages, if we don't involve God in the midst of our finances, in the midst of our singleness, we will never live or experience the extraordinary life that God has for us until ordinary people get on their knees and pray to an extraordinary God. So let's continue this little series, all right? I was reading a book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. It is a phenomenal book. And in the book, he shares a story about a couple who's getting ready to get married. Now, they live in Boston, so they went to downtown Boston. They found a Hyatt Regency there, and they were looking for a place to do their reception. Well, the event coordinator couldn't have been a sweeter person, and she walked them through the menu and the different options for the flowers, for the tables, all that little stuff. And so they chose a menu item, and they chose the flowers for the table. And this was years ago. It only cost 13 thousand dollars. If you've done a wedding recently, you know that that's cheap. You understand what I'm saying right now. So it's $13,000. They asked for half of the money up front, so the bride wrote a check for half of the money. Well, a few days goes by. They're looking at wedding invitations. They pick out a wedding invitation. They pick the date that they're going to send the wedding invitation out for. And boy, they're just both so excited. But wouldn't you know it, on the day when the wedding invitations are supposed to go out, the groom gets cold feet. Goes to the bride-to-be, says, I'm so sorry, but I just don't know for certain that I need to be married to you, that this is the direction I want to go with my life, so I'm ending the relationship. Well, she is absolutely devastated, as anybody would be in this situation. But she wants to go and get her money back, cancel the event. So she goes back down to the Hyatt Regency, and she explains what's taken place. She's humiliated by it all. And, and the event coordinator, again, couldn't have been more gracious. And she said, listen, I, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you, but I've got even more bad news. Uh, you're, uh, you signed a, a contract. The contract is binding. And when you cancel an event like this, you only get 10% of the total back. I can only give you $1,300. You're going to lose $5,000. Event coordinator says, you have one of two options, though. You can go ahead and you can have a party, or you can cancel the event and lose all of that money. She said she would think about it. So she went home and she began to pray about maybe what she should do. And she felt like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to have the party. But it's not going to be a wedding reception. I'm going to throw a party for all the down and outs in downtown Boston. All the homeless people, all the vagrants, all the street people. I want to give them a night away from the, the toughness of the street. Now, one of the things you need to understand about this young woman was that 10 years earlier, she had found herself to be homeless as well. 
She had gotten a job along the way. She had gotten herself some housing. She began to save. And she thought, you know what? I want to give back to the community that meant so much to me. So on the night when she was supposed to be celebrating her wedding, she was celebrating with a bunch of homeless people. And, and, and there were higher regency people in tuxedos serving hors d'oeuvres to bag ladies, you see. They changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom, or groom-to-be, I should say. I kind of enjoyed that in the story, to be honest with you. She said, we danced until late into the morning, eating chocolate cake and listening to the tunes of big bands. Now, friends, if you can get a picture in your mind as to what that night must have looked like, I think you get a picture of the kind of church that Jesus came to establish. He came to establish a group of people that cared about others and that loved other people and, and people that society had long since given up on, people that society didn't want anything to do with. I, I think Jesus would say those people we are to love just as much as we would love anybody else and that we should share the grace and, and the truth of Jesus Christ with them. I remember when we started this church back in 1999, that was kind of the dream, it was kind of the goal. We wanted to be a church for people who never would darken the doors of a church. We wanted to be just like the church in the book of Acts. We wanted to love people like they love people. We wanted to care about people in the same way that they cared about people. We wanted to emulate exactly the things that they did. So last week we were talking about Acts chapter 1, and they're getting together, and they're praying. And why are they praying? Jesus has given them a huge assignment. Same assignment he's given to us. They're to go into the whole world and they're to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just a neighborhood they're trying to reach. It's not just a city. They're trying to reach the entire world. And Jesus says, listen, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. Good luck. And so these people, they, they started praying, didn't they? they got to be thinking to themselves, oh, Jesus, I don't know what you're doing right now because we weren't that impressive when we were with you, and now you're gone. And so they pray, and they pray, and they pray. And Acts chapter 1, their prayers, there's a fulfillment of what happens in Acts chapter 2 as a result of their prayers. So they're huddled up in the upper room. They're praying with every bit of intensity that they've got. They know that they're in over their heads and this is how Acts chapter 2 begins. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house that they were sitting in. They, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. As the Bible says that tongues of fire came down to rest upon these people and they were given the supernatural ability to speak in tongues. Now, what in the world is tongues? Well, the original Greek word for tongues is glossia. It means languages. They were given the supernatural ability to speak in other languages of other types of people groups so that the message of Jesus Christ could be spread. 
So the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're able to speak in other languages. And these disciples who find themselves as cowards in the upper room, all of a sudden, because of the Holy Spirit, are running out to the street proclaiming that Jesus has risen again from the dead. They go from cowards to being courageous. And Jerusalem was packed. It was Pentecost. Think of the balloon fiesta on steroids to give you an idea. If you're living in Belize, think of going to the island during high season. It's jammed packed. So they run out there. Look at what happens. Verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of him heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they ask, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? So a large crowd gathers together and they're like, what in the world's going on? They heard a strange sound and all of a sudden these guys are out there and everybody's speaking different languages and everybody's understanding what they're saying. And they're like, what in the world's the deal? And so some of the people who came by said, oh, man, it's just a bunch of guys got too, too much to drink too early. Just a bunch of drunks showing off. That's what we got right here. Here's what I want you to get. When people are filled with the Holy Spirit, people take notice. When, when, when drunks become sober, when people who are addicted are now free from their addiction, a lost and dying and unbelieving world finds that to be unbelievable. When, when a marriage is just going to implode and it's just going to fall apart, but then all of a sudden they say, let's put Jesus as the centerpiece of this marriage. Let's start praying together. Let's start seeking God together. And before you know it, that marriage is restored all because of what Jesus has done. A lost and dying, unbelieving world Finds that to be unbelievable. When a liar stops lying, when a gossip stops gossiping, it gets the attention of the people around. Listen, people can argue all day long about different theological ideas. They can never argue with you about what's happened to you. About the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Well, Peter sees this huge crowd of people. And I love Peter because whenever he saw a huge crowd of people in the book of Acts, he always preached. He always talked to those people about the resurrected Jesus. Now, I remember my first sermon. I was in sixth grade. It was for vacation Bible school. It was on David and Goliath. It lasted five minutes, and it was terrible. Now, I, I haven't gotten any better, but I have gotten longer. So I've got that going for us right there, all right? Let's look at what happens here. Peter stands up in front of this big crowd, says, you nailed Jesus to a cross and murdered him. This is the same crowd of people that some 47 days earlier had crawled out for Jesus to be crucified. Talk about courage. He's looking at the same mob of people who begged the Roman authorities to have Jesus murdered. He says, you nailed Jesus to a cross and you murdered him. But God raised him from the dead. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 were added to their number in a single day. The first church at Jerusalem became a mega church in a single day. Now, I want you to get this. The miracle of Acts chapter 2 isn't the fact that these guys were given supernatural ability to speak in other languages, even though that was miraculous. The big miracle of Acts chapter 2 is that the Holy Spirit now comes to live inside of us. Something in the Old Testament that they would have longed to have had. Listen to me. The same Holy Spirit that was in them is in you. The same Holy Spirit that gave them boldness, that gave them courage, that helped them stand up in the face of persecution is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you. And they began the church. This is the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. And this group of people fired, fired up and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Well, there just never was a community of people like this ever before. These people loved each other. They cared for each other. They prayed for each other. Friends, if you want to live an extraordinary life, we must do the same things that the people in that first church did. And if we'll do the same things the people in that first church did, we'll see the same impact that they made in our day and age as well. So what did they devote themselves to? Well, Acts 2.42 tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread... And to prayer. Write this down if you're taking notes. First thing, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. Friends, they were desperate. Remember how we said last week, the situation is desperate. The problem is, is we aren't. Because a whole bunch of us this past week, you had every intention, didn't you, to do the homework assignment? You had every intention when that alarm went off on your phone that you were going to spend some time with the Lord. You had every intention, didn't you, that you're going to stop what you were doing and you're going to spend time with Him? Did you pull that off? Did you think about Him? Did you pray with Him? Did you talk with Him throughout your day? Did you do life together with Him? Listen to me, friends. These people were desperate. Maybe the reason another ordinary week went by is because we just haven't found that desperation yet to where we really think that we need to rely upon him. It's the difference between being a fan and being a follower. And let me try to illustrate this point. I am a fan of Star Wars movies. Anybody, anybody else? Raise your hand. Play along at home. Play along at the other campuses. Anybody? Raise your hand. Let me see. I know there's more than a few of you. Come on. Let me see you. How many want Star Trek more than Star Wars? That's what I thought. Nobody. Okay, that's what I thought. Just a Four hands over there, we're going to beat you up after service. All right, that's just the way it's going to be. Star Wars, right? That's just the way it is. Star Wars fan. I've seen every single one of the Star Wars movies. I love them. Love the Star Wars movies. In fact, the first trilogy was so far ahead of its own time, it's amazing they were even able to pull that off. Love, love Star Wars. Why am I saying this? Well, this past week, I came across a strange article. Happened in Scotland. There was a voluntary survey that they gave the Scotland police officers and voluntarily, they could answer the question, what religion do you ascribe to? And there were eight police officers from the Scotland Police Force that said that their religion of choice was the Jedi Order. That's what they said. 
Eight of them said, we are Jedis, and we are, <laughs> I'm not making this up, we are learning to be Jedis. And I found out that this is a new rave all around the world. There are people now get together, and here's what they do. They get together, and they have lightsaber battles. They do. They have lightsaber battles, because that's the Jedi way of doing things. And then they'll spend time meditating so they might be able to do some kind of mind warping on somebody else to change the person's mind. These people are followers of the Jedi Order. They are serious about that. Now, me, on the other hand, I'm just a, I'm just a fan. Just a fan. Just a fan of Star Wars. I've, I've never been in a lightsaber battle. I haven't. I look forward to some of those, maybe with my grandson at some point when he gets old enough, you know, stand on his own two feet. That'd be great, because right now it'd be easy. That's all I'm saying. It'd be easy to take him out. And as far as mind powers, trying to control the thoughts of somebody else, I think that would be cool, especially if I could use that on my wife. That would be awesome. I really appreciate that. But I haven't really gotten into that, to be honest. In fact, every Star Wars movie I've ever seen, I've kind of walked away absolutely unchanged. Star Wars has not changed my life. I'm a fan of Star Wars movies. Here's what I'm fearful of. I wonder how many of us here today and how many at home, you're just a fan of Jesus. I mean, you love the fact that he died for you. You love the fact that he paid the price for your sins. And you admire him. You respect him. You think he's wonderful. But you don't follow him. You're not desperate for him. You're, you're just a fan. So you come to church occasionally or you tune in from time to time and kind of you want know, to check it out and you kind of like the music and if the jokes are good, you laugh along, you know. But, and maybe you'll get a little thought from here or there, you know, put on Twitter or something like that. But as far as actually applying this stuff and living for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as far as changing your lifestyle, changing the way you view this world and how God could use you, you're just more of a fan than you really are a follower. And I just want you to know this. Jesus isn't looking for more fans. He's looking for people who will deny themselves, who will take up their cross, and who will follow him every single day. He's looking for people who are desperate for him. And the only way you're going to break through your ordinary life is to get desperate for him. I read a story this past week about Lieutenant James Whitaker. He was one of seven men whose plane crashed in the Pacific Ocean in 1942. One of the people who was on that flight was Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. You probably know that name. He was, a, he was an ace in World War I, fighter pilot. Well, they find themselves crashed out. They, their navigation equipment didn't work. They find themselves in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They're way off course from where they're supposed to be. Somehow they survived the crash. They have three rafts. They tie the rafts about 20 feet from each other so the rafts didn't bang against each other. And these seven guys are sitting in these three rafts, and all they have to eat are four oranges. That's all they've got. They've got a flare gun, so if they see any sign of life, they can shoot a flare, and maybe they can get the attention of a passing plane, maybe a boat that's going by. So they're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Nobody knows where they are. No one knows where they've crashed. They probably haven't even sent out a rescue party for them. And so the situation is what you would say, desperate. One of the seven guys always carried with him a New Testament. He was a fully devoted follower of Christ. 
And so he pulls out his New Testament. It, it was a little khaki New Testament Bible, and it had a zipper, so it made it waterproof. And he would have his devotionals in his raft, and he would just read scriptures, and he would pray, and he would talk to God. And the other guys noticed what he was doing. They said, what in the world are you doing? He said, well, I'm reading the Bible. I'm, I'm, I'm studying the Word of God. And the rest of the guys said, well, we got nothing else to do. <laughs> Why don't you share what God's teaching you in the scriptures? And so they started with the book of Matthew, and they got to Matthew chapter 6. Look it up, true story. Got to Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father already knows what you need. That's that wonderful passage that says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's got enough worries on its own, right? Take care of today. And so they began to claim the promise of Matthew chapter 6 that somehow, someway, in the midst of the Pacific Ocean that God would provide for them. Here's what happened. One afternoon, they are starving. They had anything to eat in days. All of a sudden, a bird flies in and lands on Eddie Rickenbacker's head. True story. And somehow, with cat-like reflexes, he grabs that bird and brings it down. They kill the bird. They eat the bird. Then they use the intestines of the bird to draw fish over to their raft so they can collect more food. They said there would be days where they would gone without water and the sun was just beating down upon them. And so they would pray and they would ask God to intervene. And inevitably, a cloud would begin to form and pour down rain right on top of their three rafts so they would have clean, fresh water to drink. They said there were days when fish literally jumped into their raft. There was one guy, his name was Lieutenant James Whitaker. He gave his life to Jesus Christ as a result of the miracles that he saw because they were adrift for 21 days. This is what he said. We thank God for that little khaki-covered Bible. It led us to prayer, and prayer led us to safety. So let me ask you a question. You as desperate for God as those men were in the middle of that raft, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? And please don't tell me you are. Because none of us are. Because life and death isn't at stake, right? But here's one of the things I want you to realize. Your abundant life is. You want to live the life that Jesus has for you? You know what my biggest nightmare is? Is that one day I stand before him and he says, let me show you what your life could have been. If you just would have trusted me more. Let me show you the plans I had for you of what could have been, of what should have been. Let me show you the impact you could have made if you just would have taken me a little more seriously. Listen to me, that first church, they were desperate for God. And again, if you want to outrun ordinary, it's really quite simple. You get on your knees and you open up that Bible and you pour over it and you say, God, whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it, the answer is absolutely Yes. Now, what's the question? Here's the second thing that they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to each other. It said, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They refused to do life alone. They looked out for each other. 
This is what I fear for some of you. Some of you who are in this room, some of you are at home, you are doing all of this on your own. You come in this place or you tune in and nobody knows you. You don't open yourself up to anybody. You come in here as late as you possibly can. You leave earlier than you should, you rude person. You take out during the invitation time. It's ridiculous, I'll tell you that right now. Also, you can get out of the parking lot a little faster than somebody else. Nobody knows you. You don't know anybody. You have come for the show. But you've not come to be a part of a community. You still find yourself on the outside looking in. In the first church, that was not optional. They did life and they did it together. Have, have you seen that YouTube video called The Battle at Kruger? Has anybody seen that? The Battle at Kruger is interesting. It's a, it's a group of herd of water buffalo that are coming by and they don't realize that they're walking right by a pride alliance. Well, the lions are thinking to themselves, this is absolutely wonderful. I cannot believe that the water buffalo have just walked right up to us. And there was a baby water buffalo in the midst of the herd. So what do you think the lions did? They went after the little baby. And they dragged the baby into the water. Of course, the herd was scared to death at the other rest of the lions. So they just took off and left that baby by itself. Well, the lions are fighting back and forth over the baby. And just when you think it can't get any more dramatic than that, all of a sudden a crocodile comes out of the water and grabs a hold of the baby as well. Now there's a tug of war between the lions and the crocodile. So the lions start attacking the crocodile. Finally, the crocodile gives up. The lions get the baby water buffalo and they bring it back to the land. Now you're waiting at this point for the lions to finally finish the little baby off once and for all. And then something extraordinary happens. At four minutes and 30 seconds, the herd comes back. And they're not happy about what they're doing to the baby water buffalo. And if you watch it, there are times when these, these, these animals, these buffalo, pick them up with their horns, the lions, and toss them into the water. It is awesome. If you like National Geographic stuff, this is, this is right down that alley. And they save the baby water buffalo. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Notice it says someone. He's looking for the isolated individual. He's looking for the person who isn't doing life with anybody else. He's looking for the straggler. He's looking for the stray. And I just want you to get this. You're no match for him alone. But he will never attack a herd. You see, a herd looks out for each other. And I don't know if you understand this or not, but when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, I know you did it privately, but you became a part of this herd. And around here, we look out for each other. And we pray for each other. And we encourage each other. And we help each other along that. You are part of something bigger than yourself. If you'll just let yourself be a part of it. The first century Christians, they leaned on each other. So I went through the book of Acts. And one of the phrases that comes up again and again is this word together. So I'm going to read a phrase. I'm going to point to you. It's going to be like one of those responsive readings. And every time I point to you, I want you to say the word together. And I want you to say it like you've been awake for a few hours. Okay? So don't say it like, together. Give me like you believe it, all right? Here we go. Let's try this one out. All who believed in Jesus were? Yeah. 
They attended the temple. They remembered Jesus. They prayed. They were gathered in one place that shook because of the power of God's Holy Spirit. They were all in Solomon's portico. They gathered at Mary's house to pray when Peter was in prison. They gathered to eat. They gathered to survive. I've practiced that all week. You did really good. I just want to tell you that right now. That was really good. Churches in a building. The church is you. And the effectiveness of this group of people has nothing to do with this building. It has to do with us locking arms with each other and kicking down the very gates of hell. You choose how effective our church is going to be. Because you're the church. To all of our campuses that are watching, you decide how great your campus is going to be. For too long, you've been looking to the staff. The staff's for you. The staff will be there. The staff will resource you. But you decide. You decide because you are the church. So you're going to keep coming in late? Keep leaving early? Just going to be a one-hour obligation kind of thing that you're a part of? That you're really not a part of, but you think you're a part of? You ever going to lock eyes with anybody? And and advance the kingdom of God? You ever going to get in that small group? Come on, are you ever going to get in that small group? Because I couldn't have made it easier for you. Because on the app, five banners down, on-campus small groups. Click it. Look at the options. We've got free kid care. You come to this place. You come to your campus. It's at your campus. It's at this place. All you got to do is show up and drop your kids off. That's all you got to do. Will you lock arms? Will you be a part of something bigger than yourself? Look at what happened to this first church. Verse 47. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why is that? People wanted to be a part of a group of people like this. Because they had never seen anything like it before in their life. They had never seen a group of people love like these people loved. Or forgave like these people forgave. Or leveraged their life like these people leveraged their life. They had never encountered a group of people who would not be silent about what Jesus had done for them. And so they wanted to share it with everybody that they possibly could. In 1903, there was a Methodist revival that took across uh, parts of America. A minister from North Carolina named John B. Culpepper wrote an article about these Christians in the 1900s. This is what he said about them. He said, these people can shout in a cemetery. (laughs) I love that. They actually use their Bible in their work. They'll go to China or Africa as cheerfully as to the market. It's not a money question with them. They know the Holy Spirit. They love you hard. Whenever I meet or hear one of them, it makes me want to quit something or go somewhere or be somebody. I don't want to be a part of a church like that. Does our life do the same thing to other people? When people come to Sagebrush, do they stop and they say, now that's a group of people 
who exist to know Christ and make Christ known? Do they stop and say, now that's a group of people that love unconditionally and they forgive willingly and they pray and they study and they do the word of God as if their life depends upon it and they do it together because we're better together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we need each other. And in this world that we live in where everything is so individualized, where we think we can handle life on our own, we got ourselves in the mess, we'll get ourselves out of it. No wonder we struggle so much. No wonder we're not living that abundant life because we think we can somehow figure that out ourselves. We need the encouragement of each other. We need the support of each other. We need the prayers of each other. We need help in the midst of crisis and turmoil when storms come blowing in. Lord, we need each other. So I pray that somebody would get in a small group. Somebody would lock arms with somebody else and serve. And that we'd be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And that the impact that we always wanted to see happen here in this place and at all of our campuses, it's all over the state of New Mexico and in Belize, that we would see that impact become reality because we allowed you to use us in such a way together like we've never been used before. I ask this in Jesus' name.